Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, just very briefly, uh, I know I may be a new face to some of you here in the church. Um, my name is Eric Oldfather, and I have moved here with my wife recently to Chicago uh, to serve here as the director of youth ministry. And we have just been so welcomed by you all and so thankful for your hospitality and just want to say a brief moment of thank you for that. Um, we're going to continue our series uh, during this season of Lent. We are going through what they call the Ascension Psalms, um, which are these psalms that were sung by the people of God as they entered up into Jerusalem to worship at the temple, uh, to be with God and to be with his people. Uh, they're called the Ascension Psalms because Jerusalem is kind of on a, a plateau and the people are walking up uh, towards it. And they're praying these psalms over and over again. And these psalms, in, in many ways, for us, uh, form a picture of Christian discipleship. What does it mean to follow God? Uh, and in particular, we've been using Eugene Peterson's book, uh, A Slow Obedience in the Same Direction. Um, and so we're just considering all these things together. Um, and what I love about these psalms is that they reorient the people of God to worship to worship him. And these psalms, they were sung um, not just by a people a long time ago, they were sung by mothers and fathers, by husbands and wives, by employers and employees, as they anticipated and longed to worship with their God. Um, so this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 124. Uh, if you have your Bible, please turn there with me and uh, hear the word. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when the people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I ask you would be with us this morning as we open your word, and I ask that you would open our hearts to it by your Spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts here be acceptable and pleasing to you, our rock and redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, how many of you have ever gone somewhere where a friend or a loved one, they, they raved about it, whether it was a travel destination or a restaurant? Um, when Emily and I were moving here to Chicago, we had all sorts of people tell us, oh, you have to go here, you have to go here. And there's one place that they said, this is the best place to get a hamburger. And so we're like, okay, we'll go, we'll go here to get a hamburger. Uh, and it supposedly was the best one in the city. And don't get me wrong, it was, it was really good. But if I'm to be honest, it actually isn't the best one that we've had since we've been here in the city. Um, our friends were so confident about this burger being the best in the city, yet it did not meet our expectations. The actual product was not what we were expecting and ultimately, a little bit of disappointment there. I think this can create a pattern of cynicism for us often. Cynicism uh, is the next time someone 
shares their opinion on what the best burger in town is. Now, this is a silly example in some ways, but I think it might reveal a larger experience that we have in managing our expectations, in trying to be told or sold something. We, we live in a consumer world in, in modern America and uh, with marketing and uh, within, that dominates our society. So we spend a lot of time and energy trying to sell things and convince people that these things are the best next thing on the market. Or maybe we convince people that there's this great travel experience that they're missing out on if they don't go. Because of these marketing strategies, though, we become accustomed to questioning and doubting things. Is it really the best hamburger? Is this really going to change my life if I travel there? We become cynical to these grand claims. We become apathetic in order to protect ourselves from being duped or fooled into believing something. We do not want to be taken advantage of, so we rather build up these walls of doubt or uh, cynicism to protect us. We do not want to waste our time or our emotional energy with something that will ultimately disappoint. I say all that because I think that when we come to Psalms and when we think about our prayer lives, we enter into this very tension here. Psalm 124 brings us so much zeal and confidence in who the Lord is and what he has done. And yet, sometimes if we're really honest, it's hard to enter into that tension with them. Sometimes we are apathetic. Is this really true? Is this psalm really uh, something that I can enter into? Is the Lord really on my side? Is he really my help? Sometimes we become disconnected. Uh, it creates even a sense of pride. Oh, I can't count on the Lord. I can take, I'll just take care of it myself. And sometimes we won't even say these things verbally, but we experience it inwardly. Rather than going to the Lord, we depend upon ourselves. Or maybe the other side of it, we have been praying. We have been pouring out our hearts to the Lord. And yet we come to a point where we're starting to lose hope because it seems like our prayers are falling on empty ears. Is God really on my side? Is he really my help? Jesus and the disciples, when they entered into Jerusalem, prayed these same prayers. And Jesus is not unaware of the tension that we feel. Jesus went into Jerusalem, a city that was occupied by a foreign army, an army that was violent and brutal to those who they conquered. Jesus entered into a city where the religious leadership had nothing to do with him and ultimately would put him to death. Jesus, as he prayed this psalm, found himself in the same tension that you and I may find ourselves. The psalms are given to us not so much to be studied, although that's really good and important. There's so much rich theology and truth to understand, but the psalms actually are to be used. They're a tool. They teach us how to pray, to read aloud his word, to be sung, these songs. As we use the Psalms, their words shape us. They change us. And I think there's three ways in which this Psalm can help us enter into these places where we may be hesitant to take our request to the Lord. We may be hesitant to lose hope in the Lord. And Psalm 24 invites us into this. The first way I want us to see this is that the Psalm shapes us 
to see that God is with us as he was with those who came before us. How does the, how does the psalm do this? I love, I love how this psalm opens up. Listen to it. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us. The psalmist is so caught up in what the Lord has done for his people, what God has done, that he invites everybody else around him to join in praying this psalm. The psalm doesn't really indicate the context behind the deliverance of Israel here. There's only a few times in Israel's history where the whole nation faced destruction or annihilation at the hands of their enemies. But I think there's one place in particular in Scripture that is fitting to what this psalm may be talking about. Uh, That's fitting with how the psalm is worded with the waters and the enemies and the anger. And I think that we see it uh, with Pharaoh's army chasing Israel towards the Red Sea. In the psalm, Israel is led to praise God for delivering them from this army that would have ultimately swallowed them up and whose anger was burning against them who, when they tried to escape from slavery. God delivers his people from these raging floodwaters of the Red Sea that would have overwhelmed them if the armies had pushed in on them. It would have tra- they would have been trapped by Pharaoh's army. This trap was set, and it seems like all was lost. But what we're told is that God broke this trap. God set Israel free. God parted the waters and allowed thousands and thousands of men and women and children to pass through the waters unharmed. They were caught in between the most powerful army in the ancient world and this vast water, and yet God saw them and saved them. They were helpless. They were as prey in the teeth of a predator, and yet God was with them. He remained with them. And he remained with them not just then, but he went through the wilderness with them. He wandered 40 years with them. He ultimately brought them to the land of promise. God was on their side. If the Lord was not on their side, they would have been overwhelmed by the waters. They would have been torn apart by Pharaoh's army. If the Lord had not been on their side, they would have perished in the wilderness. The reason they did not perish was because of God's faithfulness to his people. He was with them. He would be their God, and they would be his people. God's faithfulness to be with his people and to protect him is not only true here at the Red Sea, but it's true in every instance of salvation throughout history. You may have reason to, you have reason to trust God in this moment that are larger than how you might feel or how you subjectively subjectively experience his presence. When you reflect on your story, on your life, on your experience of God's goodness, these examples of God's presence with his people point us back to that. It points us to his faithfulness. It actually points us beyond our stories to a much greater story. The story of Scripture is one big story of God's love for his people, for you and for me. And we see this because God delivered Noah from the waters, from the flood waters as well. He did that for you and for me. When God delivered Joseph and David and Daniel and all the other Old Testament heroes from imprisonment, from capture, from the very jaws of the lion, from death itself, that is a reminder to you and me of what God has done. 
so that we might know with our heart and hear with our ears that God was present and continues to be present with his people. See, the psalm helps shape us into people who see that we are part of a bigger story in which God is drawing us into, that we would be his people and that we would know that he is on our side. So we have seen from this first part of the psalm that although we are connected to a larger story, at the center of that story is God's presence with his people. God is with his people. As we begin to see God's presence in our lives and in the world, we are moved to praise. And this leads us into the next part of the psalm. What does the psalm continue to teach us? It shapes us to give thanks to God for his faithfulness to us. First, we see that God is present with us, and then it leads us to thanksgiving because of his faithfulness towards us. As Christians, there are so many ways in which we honor the Lord. We obey his commandments. We seek a relationship with him. We serve our neighbors and those in need. Of course, all these things are good and true and right. But as obedient servants of the Lord and as followers of Christ, our basic posture towards him is one of gratitude. Gratitude for what he's done for us. Gratitude for how he has sustained us in our lives today. Gratitude for his future promises that he's made to us. Without gratitude, without a heart of thanksgiving, our efforts to follow God and his commandments are going to grow wearisome and tiring. As pilgrims on this journey of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we sometimes need something to sustain us in our obedience and to follow the Lord and to follow Jesus. We cannot just do it by our own willpower and ability. We need God to enter into our lives and to give us a heart of gratitude. It must be, we must, this must come from a position of thanksgiving for all that God has done for us. As we see ourselves in this larger story of salvation and redemption, our first impulse should not be, how has God failed me recently? Or what has God done for me lately? But rather, our first impulse should be praise. Our first impulse should be what the psalmist said, blessed be the Lord for what he has done for me and for you. This is why the psalmist pauses in the midst of the waters that are raging. He pauses in the midst of the snare of the fowler, and he says, blessed be the Lord. Time and time again, the psalms invite us into this posture of thanksgiving. As we enter into this posture towards God, we begin to live in harmony with him and with those around us. Christians across the centuries have acknowledged and echoed these words time and time again in their worship. Blessed be the Lord. One English uh, Puritan pastor, his name is William Law, he said it like this when thinking about our disposition of thanksgiving. He said it, To be always in a thankful state of heart before God is not to consider a higher plane of spirituality, but rather it's the normal attitude of one who believes that all things work together to them that love God, who are called according to his purpose. William Law here is saying that the the practice of giving thanks to the Lord is central for all of us as we follow on this long path of obedience. As we go down this path, we are those that need to be thankful for the ways in which God has acted and the ways in which he has acted in our lives now and the ways in which he will act in the future. This psalm helps shape us into a people who give thanks. 
I think one maybe practical way or personal way to think about this is God is a personal God and we give thanks to him for what he's done. And I, would, I think about the people in my own lives that I, I try to show gratitude towards and usually the ones that are the most significant in my life, like my family and in particular my wife, are sometimes the ones that I give the least gratitude and thanksgiving for. I take them for granted rather than recognizing their constant presence in my life. And no, my wife and my loved ones and my family are not God, but they give us a picture of that, that sometimes we are those who take his presence and what he has done for us for granted. So he calls us into thanksgiving. So we see that our stories are connected to a larger story of God being present with us, we see the psalm shapes us in, in our attitudes towards a posture of thanksgiving. It reorients the way that we think about living with him and with others. And lastly, the psalm shapes us to draw our confidence about the future from who God is and what he has done for us. Who God is and what he has done for us. The psalm ends with this confessional statement. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. It moves from a place of uncertainty, of an outcome and confusion, to a place of certainty, where the psalmist has been reoriented to see who his God is and what he has done for him, what he has done for you and for me. When we give children names, sometimes we give them names that are beautiful. Sometimes we give them names that have a nice meaning or inspirational. Uh, my name, for instance, Eric, it has Scandinavian roots, and it means eternal ruler. Um, now, by no means am I a king or a ruler. I'm not. That, that doesn't describe who I am. However, in the Bible, and the way in particular God's names are given and how he reveals himself, it reveals something about who he is and what he does. In the Bible, there's all sorts of names that are given that describes his character and his quality. He is the God most high. He is the Lord God Almighty. He is everlasting. He's holy. And then it also describes what he has done. He is creator, deliverer, savior, redeemer, and in particular, Emmanuel, God with us. This is why the psalmist can say our help is in the name of the Lord. His name is so closely identified with who he is and what he does that it is actually the source that we call to. We call upon his name, knowing that he is our creator knowing that he is our Savior, knowing that he is our Lord. Trusting in God for our help means that we trust in his very name. We trust who God says he is and what his names reveal about his character. We trust him because he's trustworthy. There's an Old Testament, in the Old Testament, you have these con very different characters. You have King Saul and King David. And at the very end of 1 Samuel, they're both in crisis. Saul is about to lead his army against the Philistines where he's going to die. And David, at the end of 1 Samuel, uh, his family is lost. They are captured. His men are so angry at him that they're about to stone him. And yet these two men respond in two very different ways. Saul strengthens himself in himself and in the things of the world with food and drink. David, on the other hand, strengthens himself in the Lord. David knows where his source of strength comes from. I think there's a way in which we can read this psalm and other psalms, and we can walk away thinking, wow, this, this sounds good, but it's too good to be true. 
Maybe if I was gullible and naive, I could seek help from God, but I'm not. I'm rigid. I'm uh, fearful. Yet this psalm does not teach us that it requires naive faith or blind faith, but rather that we can have a sure and strong confidence in knowing where our help comes from and who we can trust in. We are not placing our confidence ultimately in abstract ideas and philosophical philosophical constructs. Rather, our confidence and our help comes in a person, God, who is a personal God. The Christian faith is relational, trusting in a personal God, a God who created all things and sustains everything and yet personally relates with you and me. As Christians, we know our help is in the name of the Lord because he made the heavens and earth because he is sovereign over all things, because he delivered Israel from the Red Sea, because he sent his son into the world, because he raised him again on the third day. Our confidence is not in mortal men or women. Our confidence does not even come from our bank accounts, from our education. It doesn't come from the sort of mom or dad or daughter or son or employee or employer that we are. No, our confidence comes from God, the maker of heaven and earth. Our confidence comes in the promises that he has given to us and ultimately in Jesus. As those who are asking for God's presence in our lives, as those who are seeking his presence, we can become rigid. And I say that with me as standing at the front of the line. We can become rigid to, these, to his request that he is our help. We lose sight that he is our God, that he is for his people, that he is for you and for me. We get caught up in our own stories and our own lives. We grow cold and stale in our attitude towards him, even though he has wonderfully shown himself merciful and gracious towards us. Our hearts grow discontent and bitter rather than blooming with gratitude and joy. We are those who lack confidence in the Lord. Yet there's good news for you and me. This psalm actually invites us back into the gospel story. Where there is pride in our self-sufficiency, God is saying, I am here. Where there is a lack of gratitude, God is saying, I am here with you. Look at what I have done for you. When there is a lack of confidence, God says, do not look upon yourself, but look to me. Look to me. I would like to end on this one note, though. I know that oftentimes we can become rigid in our prayer lives, but I also know that as well, we are those who have also called out to God. We call out for help, and we wonder, where is he? Where is his presence? Why am I suffering? Why am I enduring hardship? And what I love about this psalm is that the psalmist never, never shies away from that. He never indicates that he never suffered. He never indicates that he endured hardship or loss. He never says he, he did endure it. He did endure loss but he actually says quite the opposite, that he was overwhelmed with the waters, that he knew the pain of the teeth of being caught by the predator. The psalmist boldly ends his confession, though, saying that his help is in the Lord, not because God keeps him from all this pain, from all this loss, from all this suffering, but rather because God has sustained him, but rather it ends this way so that we might know where to go in order to find help in the time of our distress. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Our help is in the name of Jesus Christ who came and died for you and for me to set us free, 
and to give us life. He promises never to let us go. He promises he will never be se- we will never be separated from his love, no matter our circumstances or our trials. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall oppression, shall violence? This psalm says no. For our help is in the name of the Lord. Nothing will separate us ultimately from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Almighty and eternal God, you have revealed yourself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and live and reign in the perfect unity of love. We rejoice in your eternal glory as we join with your people on earth and all the company of heaven in the unending hymn. 